This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. Uh, you know why I'm doing fantastic, because you were part of this conversation that's coming up with a friend of ours, someone that we are honored to have in our lives, both personally and professionally, because that tends to sort of merge in with one another from time to time. And he's a repeat guest here, and he's got a lot of good information. But Tim, you have some good information. Some of that is how you are doing today. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for uh, for asking in that uh, in that way. A natural way. <laughs> Very excited to uh, introduce our newest conversation with Bill Thomas of Mind Over Murder. That's a podcast you can find. Go check that one out in your favorite podcatcher. He does that with his friend Kristen Dilly. They've both been on the show several times, but Bill Thomas is coming back this time because he is the brother of Kathy Thomas, who was murdered as a part of the Colonial Parkway murders. And there was recently some news in the Colonial Parkway murders. It's actually a lot of news, a lot to suss out if you're the brother of one of the murder victims in this case. And that news you speak of is the release of a man named Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. He was named as the prime suspect in connection to the murders of David Nobling and Robin Edwards through DNA. And you would think that this is something that is universally good news for Bill and the families of these two, as well as the families of the other Parkway murder victims. But as Bill will explain, there's a whole lot of politicking and red tape, paper cover-ups that happened throughout this investigation. So while it is good news, it comes with this additional caveat of why did it take this long and how did this guy even get on the radar and why was he not served any form of justice prior to this? Yeah, all great questions. And Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. died in 2017 at the age of 63. But the FBI is asking for your help. If you have any information on Alan Wade Wilmer Sr., please call one 800 call fbi or you can submit a tip online tips.fbi.gov or email at questions at vsp.virginia.gov when this news came out they announced that alan wade wilmer senior was also responsible for the murder of Teresa lynn howell who was a missing person as of 1989 and Wilmer is also circumstantially connected to Cassandra Haley and Richard Call's disappearances. They are more traditionally known as part of the Colonial Parkway murders, whereas Teresa Howell was not. That's correct. Teresa Howell was a bit of an outlier because the Parkway murders essentially took place involving couples that were murdered in their cars, and that was the case with Bill's sister, Kathy. Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski were a couple that was murdered in their car, and 
And while they're not connected to Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. as of yet, we do expect some news coming down the line at some point that he's going to be linked possibly to those two. But as Bill believes, perhaps several more rape and murder victims that happened during that time period around that area. And Tim, if people wanted to listen to this episode and Bill's beautiful voice without being interrupted by commercials, where could they go to find this? Well, listeners can now subscribe to Crawlspace Premium on Apple Podcasts, but if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there. It's $4.99 a month. You get ad-free episodes. Our entire catalog is ad-free. You get early new episodes and our bonus show that everybody loves. Okay, so we're going to break for a commercial and we'll be right back with Bill Thomas. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome back to the podcast. Bill Thomas, how are you today? I'm good. You know, it's funny. The platform you guys use to record this thing makes it even more exciting, Tim. You and Lance, you know, say, okay, we're going to start. And then it does this countdown. Five, four, three, two, one, which just makes it that much more exciting to see you guys. Well, we used to have the countdown starting at 90 seconds, but that was just too much buildup. <laughs> The anxiety just took over. We realized that we had to start at five. But Bill Thomas is joining us again. I don't know how many times you've joined us. It's really countless at this point. You, as they say, need no introduction. But just for the sake of formality, do you want to give a little bit of an introduction here? Who's Bill Thomas? Why are you in our world? wonderfully in our world. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm excited to be in, in uh, Lance and Tim world. My name's Bill Thomas. I'm the older brother of Kathy Thomas, who together with her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, are the first two victims in the so-called Colonial Parkway murders. And we've had really significant and exciting news in the Colonial Parkway murders. It's now over the last two weeks or so since the FBI the Virginia State Police and the Hampton, Virginia Police Department held a joint press conference on January 8th, 2024. Can you tell us a little bit about your sister? And um, could you tell us a little bit about the other cases that had been considered part of the Colonial Parkway murders? Well, the case kicks off in 1986. My sister, Kathy Thomas, who's the youngest of four kids in my family, and her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, are found murdered on the Colonial Parkway, this 23-mile-long ribbon of land. It's a national park located in Virginia. It connects Colonial Williamsburg with two other historic sites, Jamestown and Yorktown. A lot of people from that part of the country know it from class trips and that sort of thing, because it's this historic district. So Kathy and Becky are found murdered in fall 1986. Kathy was a Naval Academy graduate, had served on active duty in the Navy for five years, and had just left the Navy prior to her uh, murder. And then her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, was a senior at William & Mary, which is in Williamsburg. So their double homicide, which is an FBI case because it happened in a national park, is followed by a second murder a year later under very similar circumstances. A young couple who met that day, actually, Robin Edwards and David Knobling, are murdered about a half an hour away at the Ragged Island wildlife refuge. There's no immediate connection made between the murders, but obviously law enforcement was very concerned because double homicides are rare. Both of these occurred in like lover's lane situations where couples go to make out. I'm told by the experts that double homicides are rare in lover's lane 
murders are actually quite rare. That's 1987 in the fall. The following spring, now we're up to April 1988, a young couple go missing on a first date, and their names are Keith Call and Cassandra Haley. Keith's Toyota Celica is found abandoned, basically, on the Colonial Parkway. So now we're back onto the Colonial Parkway. This is an FBI case again, and Sandy go missing and have never been found. So what's it been, 36 years? Forgive my math. They've never been found. So I think it's pretty safe to assume that Keith Call and Cassandra Haley are not going to walk through the door tomorrow. They are missing and presumed to be another double homicide in this Colonial Parkway murder series. And then finally, two people who are traveling together, they're not really a couple, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer, go missing on Interstate 64, heading down to Virginia Beach, where they had recently moved. When I say they're not a couple, they're really traveling companions. Anna was engaged to Daniel's brother. They are heading down on the interstate. Interstate 64, it appears that someone stopped them or they stopped at a rest stop. They go missing. His car is found on the opposite side of the road on Interstate 64, heading back in their direction of travel. Very sadly, their bodies are not found for six weeks. And they're found at a hunt club off Interstate 64. The murders would have happened on Labor Day weekend, 1989. And they're not found until mid-October 1989. So we've got the murder of four couples, approximately one couple a year. It's actually a three-year period, but it's 86, 87, 88, 89. Forgive me for the long answer. I mean, it's kind of difficult to not have an answer to that question without it being a little bit extended. And I think that's really necessary because you're the brother of one of the people who lost their lives in this series of murders. So... For you to truncate anything and try to, I don't know, condense an explanation, I think would be impossible. And I would wonder, honestly, like, what's wrong with Bill if he's not (laughs) giving us like the most complete answers possible? Because that's honestly very respectful to all of the victims, including your sister. And I want to hear that. And I know the listeners want to hear that. Can you remind us, when did you decide that this was going to be something that became your life? Because you had, you know, a number of other careers. Like, really, it sounds like you had a like very fun careers in the music industry and all of that since... You started the podcast. This has been primarily your life. When did that transition happen? You know, it's funny. As you were saying that, Lance, I was thinking about how many hours you and Tim and I and my podcast partner, Kristen Dilley from Mind Over Murder, how many hours we've spent in threes and fours talking about the Colonial Parkway murders and your views on things. And I welcome everybody's perspective and talking to the two of you over the years, on and off the air, has been incredibly helpful. I got more heavily involved in the Colonial Parkway murders in fall 2009. So this is 23 years after Kathy and Becky were murdered. I stumbled upon news stories from Virginia, the CBS affiliate in Norfolk, WTKR. There was an investigative reporter, really great guy named Mike Mather, and he did two long stories, five minutes or longer, which is a lot of time on local news, he did these investigative reports that said that the FBI had lost control of 78 highly graphic, and I mean really graphic, crime scene photos of my sister Kathy and the other victims in the Colonial Parkway murders. These have been shot by Virginia State Police and FBI 
photographers over a period of years. And a non-FBI agent photographer for the FBI had retired and he had stolen a copy, probably electronic, but it could have been on paper, had stolen a copy of these 78 highly graphic crime scene photos. And he was using them without authorization at a training academy, now defunct, called the Mid-Atlantic Training Academy. We became aware of this in fall 2009, and that's how I initially got involved in Kathy and Becky and all of the victims in a more serious way. So that origin of my much more direct involvement was at the 23 year mark. And now we're at the 37 year mark. So about 14 years ago. Very good. And you and Kristen Dilly have a fantastic podcast called Mind Over Murder that we highly recommend everybody check out. And you've been doing some updates on the Colonial Parkway murders, um, which I've been listening to is very informative. Can you tell us about the recent news developments? Well, we got some really exciting news in the Colonial Parkway murders in that finally a suspect has been identified in the Colonial Parkway murders. Unfortunately, he's deceased. And no surprise, when a case drags on for more than three decades, sometimes your offender or offenders are dead. It was announced two weeks ago now by FBI, Virginia State Police, and Hampton, Virginia Police that they had identified a man named Alan Wade Wilmer, W-I-L-M-E-R, senior. We have to be careful because there's also a junior who's his son who was eight years old at the time of the Colonial Parkway murders. So this doesn't involve the son. But the man, Alan Wade Wilmer Sr., has been linked via DNA to the murder of Robin Edwards and David Nobling at Ragged Island. So that's incident number two in the Colonial Parkway murders as well as the murder of a lovely young woman named Teresa Howell, H-O-W-E-L-L. And Teresa was murdered in 1989, and they believe that she met Wilmer at an after-hours club in Hampton, Virginia called the Zodiac Club. These three examples, these all involve rape and murder. Wilmer is attacking couples as well as single women linked by DNA and he officially meets the criteria for a serial killer. If you kill two or more people in two separate incidents, you're considered a serial killer. Now, Wilmer Sr. is also suspected in a number of other rapes and murders in Virginia and may extend into neighboring states as well. We're looking at some cases in North Carolina and we're hearing rumors of trips that he made to Maryland as well because Virginia's you know, right there in the middle. This guy's a waterman. He was 63 years old at the time of his death. He died in 2017. He actually died what sounds like a horrible death. He died at home and his home in Lancaster County, Virginia, which is a couple of hours away from where the Colonial Parkway murders took place. Apparently, he was not found, we're hearing, for as long as a month. His hunting dogs got at the body, and apparently it was a really, really ugly scene. DNA was taken at that time, because when you find someone in such an advanced state of decomposition, usually the medical examiner will take a DNA test, because you just have to figure out, is this the person we think it was because they've been dead for a long time. Conditions are pretty terrible. So a DNA sample was taken at that time. Moving forward now, we knew several months ago that this announcement was coming. I had heard from media sources 
that a significant announcement was going to be made in the Colonial Parkway murders. Very unfortunately, when the actual announcement was made on January 8th, it was made in a way that was very, very confusing. And a lot of people, people that have been following this case for 30 plus years and media people, reporters and others were like, what the heck was that? It's like they deliberately made the news, the announcement confusing. How so? Well, right from the start, we had heard in October that this announcement was coming. And at the time my media sources approached me, they were able to give me very specific information. They knew the names of the suspects, plural. They knew there was going to be a DNA created link announced that linked Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. to the murder of Robin Edwards and David Nobling and the sexual assault of Robin Edwards, as well as the rape and murder of Teresa Howell. They also said, been matched to two of the Colonial Parkway murders. Now, Kristen Dilley, my podcast partner, and I, being the eternal optimist that we are, we were hoping that meant two pairs of victims, not two individuals. Our media contacts also told us that this did not involve, this DNA match did not involve Thomas and Dowski. So it did not involve my sister Kathy and her girlfriend Becky Dowski. That cleared that off the table, you know, for the moment. So we were super excited about this. Now we did not say a word to anyone, but there was an expressed concern made to me directly uh, that they were concerned about media leaks. I did not say anything to the FBI or the Virginia State Police about what we knew. We said nothing. The bizarre thing is when the actual announcement is made on January 8th, first of all, they made this significant effort to not call the case the Colonial Parkway murders. They actually, I think, made up another name. Suddenly they're calling Robin Edwards and David Nobling's murder the Isle of Wight murders. Now, I've been involved in this case for 37 years. No one has ever called Robin Edwards and David Nobling's murder the Isle of Wight murders. It did happen in Isle of Wight County, but most people have either referred to this as one of the Colonial Parkway murders or the Ragged Island case because that's the specific location. Right from the get-go, the language used by Virginia State Police and FBI spokespeople was very distancing and confusing. Things were left out of the press conference despite reporters asking specific questions. So for instance, one reporter, Andy Fox, who's been covering this case since 1986, he knows this case very, very well. Andy Fox asked twice something along the lines of, may we ask when Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. first came on to your radar? And they said no twice just flat out refused to answer the question. Didn't say why they wouldn't answer the question. They just turned him down flat. And then oddly, despite the fact that this is supposed to be a professionally run press conference, and I've run press conferences, there was no mic in the room. So it was very hard to hear what the questioners, the reporters were asking. The people at the front of the room didn't do what you see a lot at press conferences which is they repeat the question because it is often hard to hear what the reporters are asking, but they didn't do that either. And the reason they didn't do that is because they were glossing over an incredibly important point. This same suspect, Alan Wade Wilmer Sr., was also the leading suspect in the disappearance of Keith Cole and Cassandra Haley. And the FBI and the Virginia State Police 
didn't want to say that. They didn't want to say it for highly embarrassing reasons. Now, I've known about this since this far back as 1988 when it happened. It takes me a minute to tell the story, but it's important, and I hope that's okay with you guys. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like this person was sort of plucked out of the ether when there's no indication of what put him on the radar in the first place. So yes, please take as much time as you need in explaining this embarrassing thing that they were trying to prevent from going out there. Well, we need to set the Wayback Machine to 1988, and I'll do my best to tell you the story. And this is a story I heard from my father in 1988, and he heard it directly from the FBI agents who were involved. We heard the story again when I met with Irv Wells, who was the former SAC, special agent in charge of the FBI Norfolk office, it's called a field office, during the time of the investigation of my sister's murder together with Becky Dowski, so 1986, and he was continuing to be in charge of the overall investigation in 1988 when uh, Keith Call and Cassandra Haley disappeared. Those are the two FBI cases. So in April 1988, when Keith Call and Cassandra Haley went missing, Keith's car was found on the Colonial Parkway, as we talked about. His Toyota Celica is abandoned on the Colonial Parkway, and it's only about a mile or a mile and a half very similar location along the Colonial Parkway next to the York River. Very beautiful spot. Very similar location to where Kathy and Becky's car had been found a mile and mile and a half and about a year and a half prior. So in April 1988, the FBI realizes they have a very serious problem. A young couple has gone missing. A car has been found on the Colonial Parkway. Keith calls Toyota Celica. The FBI realizes immediately there's something seriously wrong here. They've already had two double homicides, Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski in fall 86 on the Colonial Parkway, and then Robin Edwards and David Knobling at Ragged Island about a half an hour away in fall 1987. Now it's April 1988, and they've got a missing couple. The FBI throws resources at this case because they realize there's a strong possibility this couple that's gone missing is part of this series of double homicides because where the heck is this couple? The FBI puts a bunch of agents on the case and they rent out an entire hotel on the Colonial Parkway. It's a motel, still there actually. And they're working this case 24-7 trying to figure out what happened to this couple. This is a pre-internet, pre-cell phone environment. And I know our younger listeners look at me sometimes like, what? <laughs> but in 1988, most people didn't have a cell phone and there really wasn't much internet. And so the agents themselves are communicating by radio and this becomes critical. They are discussing leads that are being developed, you know, pretty much on the fly. And as part of their kind of all points bulletin outreach, they start getting reports from a number of people that were on the Colonial Parkway the night that Keith called Cassandra Haley went missing. And these are couples mostly involved in making out at these little half-moon pull-offs along the York River. It's so lightly patrolled, everybody knows that if you want to go engage in romantic or sexual behavior, you go to the Colonial Parkway because it's very lightly patrolled. Uh, National Park Service rangers actually patrol it, but not heavily. So you can pretty much do whatever the heck you want on the Colonial Park Raves. One longtime law enforcement officer said to me, Bill, it was the Wild West out there. Beer drinking, pot smoking, sex, 
gay and straight, pretty much anything went after hours on the Colonial Parkway. So they start getting these multiple reports of this very distinctive truck that a number of people saw in the Colonial Parkway. And it was described as a blue-green work truck. It was an old truck, even in 1988. It was a big, flat-sided truck with faded writing on the doors and a very distinctive rig on the back. To my eye, as a civilian, it kind of looked like a tow truck rig. But actually what it was is the tongs and winches that are used for crabbing and oystering in all the bays and inlets and rivers in that area. There's a lot of people they call watermen. So this is the kind of truck that a waterman would drive to assist in his work on the water. This truck is super distinctive. It's truly one of a kind. They know they're looking for this truck, and the full court presses on. Now, remember we talked about the radios. One of the Support staff is responsible for all the radios that the agents are using to get their orders and to share information. He hears all this chatter on the radio about this very distinctive truck they're looking for. A couple days later, so now we're talking about a few days after Heath and Sandy have gone missing, he, the radio operator guy, radios in himself and says, guys, I'm on the highway and I'm next to the truck you all are looking for. Gives them a description. They said that's definitely the truck. He's able to give them a license plate, which is incredibly helpful. On top of everything else, it's a vanity plate. So it's very easy to remember. It's the letters E-M-RAW. So it's Edom-RAW, which we know is a sexual expression as well as an oystering joke. So now the FBI has a very good description of this truck and a license plate. So four days after Keith, Call, and Cassandra Haley have gone missing on the Colonial Parkway, two FBI agents roll up on this guy at his home, which is up in Lancaster County, Virginia, a couple of hours north. They call it the Upper Neck. This is a big area for watermen and a lot of oystering, crabbing, etc. goes on up there on the Rappahannock River. So the two agents roll up on this man in his dirt driveway at his home, and he's engaged in what they regard as really suspicious behavior. He's cleaning out the truck with some sort of water and solvent and repainting surfaces in the bed of the truck as well as in the interior of the truck. So you guys got to picture this. This is actually a 1966 Dodge truck. It's 1988 at this point. This is not some fancy truck. This is a beater work truck. And so why is this guy going to these great lengths to clean and paint the truck days after the disappearance of this young couple. The FBI agents are highly suspicious. They interview the man right then and there. They go back to headquarters and they decide this guy's good for the Colonial Parkway murders, plural. They've been looking for a waterman all the way back to 86 in my sister's murder because of rope, knives, diesel fuel that were used in their murder, which are the tools of a waterman. So they go back to the motel where they're all holed up and they discuss this with senior agents. They get a search warrant and they go back and they search the home. I've heard it described as a trailer, sometimes as a modest home, but it's a small structure that he shares with his older brother. They search the home and they find what they're looking for. They find guns, 
handcuffs. This is very important because they believe handcuffs were used in Kathy and Becky's murder, as well as a pretty extensive collection of pornography. We've had several profilers on Mind Over Murder recently, including Jim Clemente and Laura Richards. We're going to have more profilers on next week. These FBI profilers are flipping out. This is like red flag after red flag after red flag. This is the kind of person you need to be looking for in a series of serial murders. So they search his home that he shares with his brother. They find all this potentially incriminating evidence. Now, again, DNA is not as advanced as it is now. Touch DNA is not a thing yet, you know, it's still the late 80s, but they find a lot of evidence. They're very hot on this guy, without a doubt. They bring him, Alan Wade Wilmer Sr., and we believe a second man, unnamed, but possibly his brother, in for a polygraph examination, a lie detector test. This is key. The man that gives the lie detector test. I know his name, but I'm not going to say it on the air. He's one of the top polygraphers, as they call them, the people that give the lie detector test. He's one of the top guys at the FBI. And he's the guy they go to for all the spy cases. There were a bunch of spies that were busted in the 80s and 90s connected to the Norfolk Naval Base, which is right nearby. And the CIA is right nearby. Uh, They've got a training camp called Camp Perry on the Colonial Parkway. Uh, There were a number of spy cases that were broken, and this guy was the one who did those tests. So this guy is considered like the polygraph whisperer of the FBI. Like He's the guy that gets the truth. He gives polygraph examinations to Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. and this other unnamed man, and they pass, that is. And now we're hearing that there may have been a second polygraph examination given to one or both of them, and it was inconclusive. And we just had a polygraph examiner on Mind Over Murder, Lisa Ribikoff. And Lisa said, you know, when you get that neither truthful nor deceptive reply, usually you have to keep digging. But for whatever reason, this doesn't happen. And they let these guys go. This is the part that doesn't come up at the press conference. So we have this situation where FBI agents were absolutely rock solid certain this was the guy. And Irv Wells is quoted in a book on the Colonial Parkway murders uh, written by our friend Blaine Pardo and his daughter, Victoria Hester. They interviewed special agent in charge Irv Wells, who passed away in 2022, about this story. And he told them the story. Now, in the book, Blaine's publishers made him change the license plate slightly because they didn't want to be highlighting a plate that could be owned by an innocent man. But Edom Raw is very clearly what the plate says. Irv Wells is quoted as saying to the unnamed FBI polygraph examiner, you better effing be right because they were certain this guy and perhaps his accomplice were directly involved in the Colonial Parkway murders. But they don't want to talk about this at the press conference. So when the reporters ask, may we ask when Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. first moved onto your radar, the FBI is desperately trying not to talk about that. What I don't get is why, if the FBI agents were so certain in 1988, he was the right guy. Why was this never revisited in all these years later? Because it turns out 
those FBI agents, and again, I know them by name. My father used to talk to them directly. And my father would even mention in his beautiful voice, my dad passed away a couple of years ago at age 90, but I remember him saying to us at at family dinners, I talked to agent so-and-so today. Their names were mentioned so often in my family's house that we knew them by name. Those agents were convinced they had the right guy and they were right. But why in the world was that information not conveyed to the later case agents who've been revisiting this case over the last 15 years. And you said at the beginning of this that you were going to try to stay calm, uh, but honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I read a couple of articles that you explain your frustration and you're getting into it here, where this is the source of the frustration, right? Like, why in the world was nothing done in the interim before this? Do you have any answers on that? Or are you sort of being stonewalled? Well, we're being terribly stonewalled. I mean, it's the amount of pressure that the FBI has put on me in the last year, especially, and behind the scenes is really not good. I mean, they have amped up a significant amount of pressure on me. I, they've actually even threatened me at this point. They, I, I've been threatened with being brought up on federal obstruction of justice charges because I keep asking questions about the Colonial Parkway murders. And I said on a conference call with senior FBI agents a couple of years ago, since when did the brother of the murder victim become the enemy? Like, I've become the enemy because I kept talking about the Colonial Parkway murders and asking questions and questioning the pace of the Colonial Parkway murders and, quite frankly, their commitment to solving them. Some experts have told me behind the scenes, and there's a lot of retired law enforcement people coming out of the woodwork, reaching out to me privately and saying, Bill, you're on the right track. Don't back off. Don't cave to their pressure. And these are law enforcement people that are saying this stuff. There's a lot of things about this case that make me extremely uncomfortable. And one of them is a number of experts have told me Behind the scenes, it feels like they don't want to solve the Colonial Parkway murders. And the why is really troubling, and I think this should bother way more people than Bill Thomas. People are telling me they may not want to solve the Colonial Parkway murders because it, they're embarrassing to the FBI and the Virginia State Police because of all the problems. I mean, I have to say this, screw-ups, whatever. I'll try to keep my language clean here. I know you run a family show. But the level of... Shall I say papering over or shall I say cover up that's going on now trying to gloss over their, I know there's a charitable expression, their serious screw ups in this case. If the FBI had done its job properly in 1988, Teresa Howell would still be alive today. After two people were questioned, search warrants were executed and they were polygraphed, they let them go. And then as near as we can tell, the agents who've handled the case in the more recent years, the last 15 years, we've had one case agent for five years. Most recent case agent has been reviewing this case for 10 years. There's a massive internal disconnect here. Why weren't those agents that were so rock solid certain that they had identified the right person and they were right, why was that never conveyed? 
to the case agents that have been working the case over the last 15 years. I think that's very fair to ask. And one quick question here, was Teresa Howell, was she ever on your radar as possibly a victim connected to the Colonial Parkway murders? No, not until my media sources reached out to me in October to say, Bill, there's been a significant break in your sister's case and there's new information coming down the pike. It doesn't directly impact Kathy and Becky yet, but they've identified a guy. They're going to be declaring him a serial killer and there's going to be a lot of information. And then what ends up coming out is way less than than what we were told to expect. So Teresa Howell was not really on our radar. I've done a bunch of research once her, her name has been put forward. We think actually if the FBI and the Virginia State Police do their jobs now, we actually think Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. will be linked to a number of other rapes and murders in Virginia and perhaps in adjoining states. There's a lot of unanswered questions about this man and his long history. He's been linked, and his brother as well, have been linked to murders extending back to at least 1985. We're actually hearing, and people, as you can imagine, are coming out of the woodwork with new information, and we're pushing people hard to please contact the Virginia State Police and the FBI. We totally support their effort to learn as much as they can about Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. He's been dead since 2017, but we believe he was an active serial killer in the 80s. 90s, extending beyond, I never know what to call that next decade. I hate the aughts, but whatever, the 2000s. We believe he was an active serial killer for decades. He's been basically out there raping and killing people for decades, basically with impunity, despite being linked to a number of different unsolved rapes and murders. And that's really disturbing. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. I just want to try to center where your sister's murder and Rebecca Dowski's was in proximity to David Nobling and Robin Edwards. How close were those crime scenes? The two crime scenes on the Colonial Parkway itself which are FBI cases, if what happened to Keith and Sandy happened on the Colonial Parkway, and we don't know that because all we have is a car with their clothing inside it, those two scenes are about a mile and a half apart along the Colonial Parkway. If you use those two places from 86 and 88 as a center point, and I don't think that's unfair because we know that the double homicides start at Kathy and Becky's crime scene on the Colonial Parkway. It's about a half an hour in either direction to incident number two, which is the incident involving the rape and murder of Robin Edwards and David Nobling. That's about a half hour, kind of roughly south. Incident number four, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer go missing on Interstate 64 about a half an hour, roughly north of that center point on the Colonial Parkway. By the way, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer are found at a hunt club six weeks after going missing. And this man, Alan Wade Wilmer Sr., is an avid hunter. He's a crack shot. He's a championship bowman. He's won archery contests. His brother, Keith, has won crack shooting competitions up in Lancaster County and elsewhere. So these guys are really adept woodsmen and watermen. They know 
the woods backwards and forwards. They know the water incredibly well. They're both watermen. They believe that Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. actually lived on his fishing boat, the Denny Wade, for weeks or even months at a time and docked it in the area of the Colonial Parkway. That actually puts him 10 minutes away by water. And actually now the theory is, and I have to criticize myself here, I don't think I ever got it. People had talked to me in online forums where we discuss these and other cases. And there's a whole subgroup of people that have been talking about the Colonial Parkway murders for years. A number of them had said they thought that a waterman was involved, which was one of the leading theories at the time, even all the way back to Kathy and Becky's murder, and that a boat was used. And I think it's a failure of imagination on my part, maybe not growing up in that Williamsburg, York River, James River, Chesapeake Bay area, and being surrounded by water. I never quite got it. So I was actually a skeptic of the waterman theory. And further, I was also a skeptic of the fact that the Colonial Parkway murders were linked because nothing scientifically, even to this day, until we have this DNA connection, links the Colonial Parkway murders. You know, I had always said I was prepared to be wrong, but I think I was wrong on the Waterman theory, and I was wrong on the fact that I was doubtful that they were all connected the more I learned over the years. I think I was wrong about that, too. It's really interesting because I remember we had talked a while ago about the person involved might be someone who was familiar with the water, had a boat. I think maybe the term Waterman did come up, but I'm not sure. But even in my head, I was thinking, wouldn't that raise more eyebrows? And and that doesn't seem likely until you describe the area. You know, it's like constant boats. You know, it's a lot less obvious when boats are traveling in and out and, and docking and doing what they're doing. You know, that's sort of just like the daily, everyday business of that area. Yeah, exactly. And I think because I didn't grow up there, I mean, I've obviously I've visited the sites many times. And Kristen Dilley is from Williamsburg, and we've worked very closely with the other families, the Call, Haley, Dowski families, all of us have worked together. And a number of those families are from Virginia, and maybe they would get it better than I would. But you're absolutely right, Lance. There's tons of boats. I mean, hundreds, fishing boats, giant United States Navy ships, sailing right by on these rivers. They load high explosives and even nuclear weapons about a mile or so from the site where Kathy and Becky's car was found. It's called the Cheatham Annex Overlook. And Cheatham Annex is part of the Naval Weapons Station. They load high explosives on Navy ships, which are headed out to sea, uh, up to and including nuclear weapons. And, you, you know, you can see all that work in the distance. But the idea that everything from small watercraft to major United States Navy and freighter type ships are cruising by is not out of the ordinary. So this guy, if he used his boat, which they're now thinking he may have done exactly that, would have easily just slipped right in and out. And apparently he was very, very good on the water. And so he knew the tides and where to dock. He could have left his boat, used the truck. The one thing that gets very interesting, Lance and Tim, is the logistics of moving and staging. That's the word they're still using of these vehicles. That is the victim's cars and trucks. Seems so complicated that 
it's hard not to think there might be a second person involved. Even if they're not involved in the killing, they might be involved in the moving and staging of the vehicles afterwards. Because I've been to some of these sites with the investigators, and they've walked me through how they think some of these attacks happened. But I have to say, a number of us, including people that are far more expert than I am, have said, you know, this would be a heck of a lot simpler if there was a second driver or a second person operating a vehicle. They think this guy has been out stalking single women and couples for decades and that he was always on the prowl, as we've heard about with many serial killers. Yeah, that could definitely make sense if we're talking about two suspects here. I know going over this in the past, we kind of thought there was a decent chance of that. Also, one thing that we had sort of discussed in the past was the idea that possibly this suspect was impersonating an officer on land. And that seems like that was not the case now with Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. because of his vehicle. Well, let me stop you, though. People are coming forward again now, and this is also disturbing news for the families. People are reaching out to me directly and other families. They're saying that Alan Wade Wilmer did pull over people on the Colonial Parkway. He didn't try to present himself as a cop. Sometimes he was driving the very same vehicle, which is incredibly distinctive and people remembered it. Sometimes he was driving other pickup trucks and other vehicles. He had access to other vehicles. But a number of people have come forward and said they had terrifying encounters with a man driving that truck, matching that description. This guy, by the way, he's got neatly trimmed beard and kind of sandy blonde hair. He's kind of average looking, I think. But something is very distinctive and this is was not covered in the press conference either. He's five foot five inches tall. So he's really pretty compact and he's very, very muscular. I, I was joking on Mind Over Murder that he kind of sounds like Popeye the Sailor Man. You know, he's like this really built guy, but he's really small. People are now coming forward and they're saying they had terrifying encounters with a man exactly matching this description. He would come up to the windows, bang on the windows when these people were parked along the Colonial Parkway, demand driver's licenses. Now remember, there's already been several murders by in some of these encounters. So people have been advised to slip their driver's licenses through a cracked window at the top. And several people did that. And I remember one woman who just approached me, she's a retired architect. She and a male friend were accosted by this man on the Colonial Parkway. He's wearing like a mechanic's uniform is the way she described it. He's driving that truck, no police lights, no badge. He flashes some sort of ID badge. She said it looked like a security company or something like that. Not a cop's badge. He just you know, sort of waved it at them. He's pounding on the window, demanding they roll the window down and demanding driver's licenses. They give him the driver's licenses and then he goes back to his truck and he's used his headlights to flash them down. And now he's got the high beams on, which cops do. And she and her male friend are having a quick discussion. And they're like, this isn't a cop. We need to get the hell out of here. They refuse to roll the window down. He's being incredibly aggressive, but they do manage to get away. So they live to tell the tale. But she said to me just the other day, this guy could barely see over the top of their Datsun B210, which is a little economy car. I laughed because my older brother Richard used to have one when he was at the Naval Academy. And she said he, she was looking at him more closely because she was on the passenger side and she realized he can barely see over the top of the car. And she noticed he was pounding on the window using his hands, trying to get them to put the window down. And she noticed how large and calloused 
his hands were, she said, his hands were like out of proportion to the size of his relatively small body, you know, compact body. And so she remembered a lot of details. Well, now it's come out that the FBI and the National Park Service, who run the Colonial Parkway, had received dozens of complaints about a man matching this description, often but not always driving the same truck. And how they weren't able to put all that together is beyond me. This guy was out there terrorizing people. There's one couple has told us, this is a male-female couple, but the guy had long hair. But what they be- the suspect, they believe it's Wilmer, said was very odd. He came up and banged on the window, same thing, very aggressive. And he said, are you girls having fun? And then the guy turned to him, who was in the driver's seat, and he had long hair. Wilmer realized he's not dealing with a same-sex couple. He's dealing with a boy-girl couple. And he actually ended up backing off. Now, interestingly, we know a gun was used in a number of these assaults because Robin Edwards and David Nobling are shot to death. So we think what he was trying to do is get them to roll down the window. But back to this couple with the guy with the long hair... What an odd thing to say, are you girls having fun, considering the murder of a same-sex couple, Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski, my sister, has already happened. You know, maybe it's a joke, maybe it's not, but it's just a weird thing to say. What we're disturbed about is if the FBI and the National Park Service were getting all of these reports, why weren't they putting this together? And why didn't anybody ever go back and take another hard look at Wilmer while he was still alive, particularly in the last six years or so, since the Golden State Killer case proved that DNA could help crack serial murders like this? I would have to imagine that law enforcement would have had an image of Wilmer Sr. that they could show to these people when they're giving their statements about these moments of being accosted by this individual. That never happened? And this guy, was this guy ever arrested for anything ever? They made some really odd comments about the fact that they couldn't, law enforcement couldn't get his DNA because he'd never been arrested for a felony. And Jim Clemente said on Mind Over Murder the other day, that's a lie. He said, that's bullshit. That's a lie. And he said, how do you think they got the Golden State Killer case? Solved. They identified a suspect, and then they went out and collected his DNA surreptitiously. As we know, you know from all these other cases, they can collect your DNA from a variety of sources legitimately. If you throw out your trash, that's considered abandoned property. That's how they got the Golden State Killer. In so many of these other cases, they put teams on people and followed suspects, waited till they threw a cigarette out the window or a coffee cup or whatever. Apparently, serial killers are very sloppy and not very environmentally conscious because I don't throw coffee cups out the window. All joking aside, there were opportunities. And Jim Clemente and Laura Richards, both of whom have 30 plus years in law enforcement, both of them are FBI trained profilers. Jim was career FBI for 30 years and Laura comes from New Scotland Yard in the UK. They were outraged. They said, Those things said at that press conference were not true. And of course they could have collected Wilmer's DNA. What we can't believe is, what's the disconnect inside the Federal Bureau of Investigation? Agents are not talking to each other. Yeah, that's a great point. That seems like a familiar story. A couple of different departments and the communication lacks and and things like that. I wonder if that was an issue here with, you know, Virginia State Police, National Park Service, FBI. One question I have was in the accounts from people 
who claim that they recall a suspect who looked like Wilmer, who may have pulled them over. Was there ever a second suspect in any of those stories? I don't think so. And the FBI and Virginia State Police and Hampton PD really emphasized that Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. was a loner. They said this a lot. I'm not aware of any reports involving a second man or anyone else in the car or truck in many of these examples. That's a good question, Tim. And so far from what I'm hearing and talking to retired law enforcement, people that have worked this case, people that are not authorized to speak about this case on the record at this point, I haven't heard a single report that involves two men in a car. What about your personal feelings? Do you think Alan Wade Wilmer is the guy responsible for Kathy's murder? It's certainly worth checking out. The FBI has looked at a number of other suspects in Kathy and Becky's case. I was basically begging our FBI agent a week or so ago on the phone to make certain that she is not so tunnel visioned on one suspect that she's not taking another really hard look at, at Wilmer, because obviously he's linked by DNA to the murder of Robin Edwards and David Knobling and the murder of Teresa Howell. And then certainly more than circumstantially, he's also linked to the disappearance of Keith Collin and Cassandra Haley. So there's five murders right there. Now I'm a civilian, but we don't have to prove any of this in court, by the way. The man's dead and has been dead since 2017. I think it's very likely that Wilmer may be responsible for Kathy and Becky's death. I also think given the Hunt Club and a bunch of other details that we know from the Anna Maria Phelps, Daniel Lauer case, incident number four in the Colonial Parkway murders. And by the way, Interstate 64 would be one of the ways very easily that Wilmer would have used to drive back and forth between the Williamsburg, Norfolk, Hampton area, his home base of Lancaster County, Virginia. Interstate 64 is one of the direct routes. I think he's actually quite possibly responsible for the murder of Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer. His brother has been linked by circumstances, certainly, to an unsolved murder in the Rappahannock area on the Rappahannock River. There's a fantastic article in the Washingtonian magazine called A Murder on the Rappahannock River. And a man named Emerson Stevens was convicted and sent to prison. And he served 31 years. They recently let him out of prison because he didn't kill the victim, a woman named Mary Harding. Strange coincidence department, shall we say? Mary Harding, the victim, who was 24, worked at the Lancaster Bank with one of the early suspects in that case. His wife, Brenda Pittman Wilmer, worked at the very same bank with Keith Wilmer's wife. Keith Wilmer, Alan Wade Wilmer's brother, was regarded as one of the leading suspects in this now unsolved murder of Mary Harding. And this Poor man Emerson Stevens served 31 years. The Commonwealth of Virginia has not admitted this is a wrongful conviction, but it is. They recently let him go a couple of years ago. But this poor man served 31 years in jail for a murder he didn't commit. And now they're back to revisiting, was Keith Wilmer involved in this murder? And perhaps did his wife, whom he's still married to, did she share information about abuse within her family or other issues with her good friend, Mary Harding, who ends up being raped, murdered, and dumped in 
the Rappahannock River with weights attached to her body. I think that kind of falls outside of the category of the coincidence department, though. I was thinking the same thing, Lance. I think you're absolutely right. Look, I'm not saying anyone's guilty of anything beyond what law enforcement can prove. But I do think Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. will be linked to a number of other unsolved rapes and murders, and perhaps, sadly, even some so-called solved rapes and murders. I'm hearing from law enforcement sources that they fear that there are other people who are currently incarcerated for crimes that were actually committed by Alan Wade Wilmer Sr., or people even worse that had died in prison serving lengthy sentences for crimes they didn't commit because Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. was responsible for those rapes and murders as well. It's going to be amazing to see how this all unfolds. You kind of gave us some indication of what's next for you, but what is your game plan as much as you can tell us here? How are you approaching everything? One thing I've figured out is that being a whistleblower isn't much fun. Uh, (laughs) I think that the FBI... Virginia State Police and local law enforcement have to work together. These cases, so many of whom are linked, I think law enforcement has to be honest with the public in Virginia and across the country and reveal what they know about these cases, warts and all. We understand very, very serious problems in these cases. We understand that We've been waiting for answers for 37 years. We get the fact that some of these suspects are dead, but we're still looking for answers. What I'm concerned about is that law enforcement seems to be scrambling to cover up their mistakes. And this seems to be so much more about reputation management than it does about solving cases. One thing I said on Mind Over Murder the other day was institutional interests seem to be superseding investigative interests. And that's really troubling. Even back to the January 8th press conference, if the FBI had admitted they had this man in 1988 and let him go, you know, just admit it and move forward. Take your lumps. When I screw up in my life, which I do plenty in my personal life, my professional life, my partner Pamela can tell you. I try real hard. Don't always succeed, but I try to admit my mistakes, my shortcomings, and try to let the other person know that I've tried to learn from that and I will do my best to make sure that doesn't happen again. If that's not going to happen with these law enforcement agencies, that's a problem. If we can't admit that there were mistakes made and move forward together in an open and honest way, I fear these cases will not be solved. Several FBI agents have said to me recently, well, Bill, you're all about transparency. What they're implying is, and they're not. And that's a problem. And I think it's terrible for the reputation of the FBI and the Virginia State Police. If they want people to trust them and look up to law enforcement like I do, they need to acknowledge, look, we had problems, we made mistakes, but we're moving forward here. The families want to support law enforcement in seeking information about Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. And we want the public to come forward. But while we're celebrating the good news, for the Edwards, Nobling, and Howell families. And it is good news. It's a mixed bag, if you know what I mean, because it's heartbreaking. But we've been looking for answers for more than 30 years in all of these cases. So to get answers is very, very important to all of our families. I hesitate to 
to go back and revisit this because every time I do, the numbers get worse. But, you know, we have eight victims in the core Colonial Parkway murders. So we have 16 moms and dads. And we've lost nine of the 16 mothers and fathers in this case. So let me be clear here. They went to their graves not knowing who killed their loved ones or even what happened to their loved ones. My parents are both gone. The Call family. I mean, I can just keep naming names. With each year, more and more family members are dying, literally dying, waiting for answers. You know, can we stop with the with the finger pointing and the backbiting and the the cover-up and focus on actually getting people answers in the Colonial Parkway murders? I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to ask for.